our identity in Christ impacts every area of our lives. And today we'll be looking at our identity in Christ as a new creation impacting how we live as those in authority and also as those under authority. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the only true, absolute, ultimate authority in our lives is the Lord Jesus. I pray today that we might see that even as we demonstrate authority as an earthly employer or teacher or politician, magistrate, employer, and as we live under the authority of others that we would see both those in authority and those under authority, that we are all under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us with an understanding of your word. Make me a faithful preacher. Make us faithful hearers of the very word of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would turn to your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 22 through the first verse of chapter 4. Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. The word of the Lord. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond service justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven." Thus far, the word of God. You may be seated. Today, we return to the sermon series, Colossians, the Supremacy and Sufficiency of Christ. Our journey has taken us through the first part of Colossians, beginning with chapter 1 and verse 1, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 17. And there, Paul's focus is on orthodoxy, right doctrine, in particular, the right doctrine concerning the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, the right, the right doctrine about the person and work of Jesus Christ, as well as the right doctrine about those who are united to the Lord Jesus in saving faith as new creations in Christ. Right doctrine has been the Apostle Paul's goal in the first part of Colossians. And now he comes to the in the letter to the second part, and we are currently looking at this second part in Colossians, beginning with chapter 3 and verse 18, and specifically going through the first part of chapter 4, but verse 1 with regards to uh, today, and here the Apostle Paul is concerned with applying that right doctrine to the believer's life. So I want us to see For those of you who are in the Ephesians Sunday School class, Paul does the exact same thing. Chapters 1 through 3, 
orthodoxy, right doctrine. Chapters 4 through 6, orthopraxis, right living. And beginning with verse 18 of chapter 3 here in Colossians, Paul turns to orthopraxis, right living, in light of this right doctrine that he has taught in the first part of the letter. We've looked at how believers are to live as new creations in Christ, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, and today as bondservants and masters, or in our context, we could say employers and employees, those in authority and those under authority. Orthodoxy and orthopraxis. And if you're a believer here today, and you think the Christian life is only about knowing the right doctrine, I have news for you. The Bible says it is about knowing the right doctrine so that you can live rightly. Orthopraxis as well as orthodoxy. I have authority over this congregation as a pastor and also as a member of session. But I am one who is under authority. I'm under the authority of my presbytery. I'm under the authority of the session. And mostly, I am, uh, and almost uh, ultimately, and most importantly, I am under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point that I want to make today is that everyone here is under authority. The mere fact you're in these pews, you're under the authority of God's word being preached to you right now. You're under authority of the session. And you're under authority in many other ways. Mostly, most importantly, you're under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you, and maybe a good many of us, are in authority in some shape, fashion, or form. Employers, teachers, Maybe you're a young person and you're on a sporting team and you're the leader of your squad. That is a position of authority. And so what Paul says here is of great practical import to each of us as the authority-under-authority authority relationships encompass everyone in this room and those who are also joining us online. And so I want us to consider today what Paul is seeking to communicate, that Christians are to live consistent with being a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ as they faithfully fulfill their obligations as those in authority and as those under authority. That those in authority and those under authority would view their obligation as being in service to Christ. Please don't miss this. If you're in authority or under authority, the obligation is exactly the same. In service to the Lord Jesus Christ as unto the Lord. And so we'll begin by looking at the cultural context in Paul's day and then consider those under authority and then those in authority. 
first the cultural context of the first century church. Paul's instructions were given in a context then where he had to deal with the obligations of Christian bondservants and and masters in the lawfully constituted institution of slavery in that first century context. The institution of slavery to which Paul refers in Colossians and Ephesians and other parts of scriptures, even 1 Corinthians, is not what we know as the chattel slavery of the 17th through 19th uh, centuries, which was a moral evil. It was a moral evil in that chattel slavery treated human beings created in the image of God as commodities to be sold and to be bought. And we need to see that this type of slavery cannot be supported from Scripture, though some seek to do it. But Scripture condemns man-selling, as Paul speaks about in 1 Timothy. The Bible condemns this type of slavery in both the Old and New Testaments. Exodus 21, 16, 1 Timothy 1, 9, Revelation 18. But not all forms of slavery are condemned in the Bible. For example, Israel was allowed to impose slavery upon the populace of those conquered nations. Genesis 15, Leviticus 25. In Exodus 22, there's an example given given of someone who uh, steals and is unable to make restitution. So the burglar is to be made a slave to pay off his debt, to make restitution. And the Bible reflects the, the practice of an impoverished person actually selling himself into slavery to pay off a debt, that is to become an indentured servant. And so in Paul's day, the lawfully constituted form of slavery uh, approved by the Roman government was neither directly uh, condoned or condemned by Jesus or the apostles. And it is estimated in that Roman Empire of the first century that there were probably six million slaves. Don't ask me how that number was, uh, came up, but that's what the scholars seem to indicate. And we know that households with bond servants were the norm in both Colossae as well as the great city of Ephesus because Paul addresses this issue in both of these churches in both of these cities. And then he wrote a letter, a very short letter, but a very powerful letter about a master by the name of Philemon in Colossae and his runaway slave Onesimus. More on that later. Bondservants in the Greek and Roman form of slavery had limited rights, though they were, sadly to say, subjected to exploitation and cruelty by harsh masters. Given that in many situations and circumstances, this form of slavery was characterized by, by the bondservant being viewed and treated 
as a member of the family. And they could generally uh, earn some form of pay, as, as we learn in Matthew 25. And they could even earn enough to purchase their freedom. And, and we see this very statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, where Paul says, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom. Avail yourself of the opportunity. Now, the context of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18 and following, and, or um, verse 22 and following, and also Ephesians 6, 5, which is a, compa- a, a compan- companion passage, the context is this very thing that there were households, Christian homes, Christians in the church who were masters with bondservants in their homes. And Paul's passion in our text today is, is centered on the spiritual order amongst Christians within this lawfully constituted institution. Paul wants us to see the, the powerful gospel that transforms the relationship between master and bondservant as both come to see their obligation as ultimately being to Christ in service to him as unto the Lord. That was then, but how about today? Thankfully, we do not have the institution of slavery, but Paul's message speaks directly to us. Paul shows us how Christians under lawful constituted authorities and Christians in authority are to live out the gospel in faithfully fulfilling their obligations, again, in service to Christ. We need to get that. In service to Christ as employees and employers, as students and teachers, as citizens and magistrates, as church members and elders. And there are many more examples that we could give. So that's the cultural context. Now second, let's look specifically at Paul's instructions to those who are under authority. How do they go about fulfilling this obligation in service to Christ? What does that obligation look like? And Paul says in no uncertain terms that that obligation looks like the bondservant, the employee, the student obeying the earthly authority as obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. For three of the summers over my college years, I I worked at a textile mill, and it's the very same uh, textile plant where my father worked in management, and he was also a designer. But I worked in the mill, not in the office. I worked on the floor amongst the machines. I did the grunt work, uh, the, the heavy heavy lifting as just a summer worker. And one of my fellow workmen, the plant carpenter, who I will not name to protect the guilty, taught me a lot about 
what work should not be. The plant carpenter worked at the mill most of his life, and he was, he was in his latter years when I knew him, and he had done the same job the entire time, not unlike most of the workers on the floor at this very massive textile plant. Each shift, he would look busy. In my eyes, he had a beautiful cart that was adorned with every type of tool and extension cord, even a ladder, that he would very uh, dutifully push that cart all over this huge plant. He looked like he was flat out busy. And the truth of the matter is, he did very little work. One of his gifts was to, to be given a job to do and to stretch that job out all afternoon while looking busy the entire time. One positive thing about the plant carpenter, who will not be named to protect the guilty, is that he saved the company money. How did he save the company money when he really didn't do his job? Because he rarely used his tools and they never needed to be replaced. Savings. I want to give credit where credit is due. You all know the labor union motto, a fair day's wages for a fair day's work. Well, Wes's motto, oh, sorry, <laughs> Willie's uh, motto was a fair day's wage for a dishonest day's work, and he was rather proud of it. What, what, what drove him was not pride in his work, was not earn your pay was not benefiting the company, but what drove him was to get the paycheck with doing the least amount of work while getting away with it. That's what drove him. As new creations in Christ, we're called to a, an incalculable higher standard than that. What is to drive our work is serving the Lord. You dig a ditch to get your paycheck, but you dig that, what drives you to dig that ditch is service to the Lord. Paul shows us as, that the Christian bondservants or employees or those under authority are to, are to obey. Verse 22, bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. He then tells us what we should not do and what should not drive us and then what should drive us as we seek to be obedient. So what should not drive our obedience is eye service as people pleasers. In just about every job that I've had, I have wanted to please my employer from the newspaper route that I started when I was 15 uh, through the textile mill years, even today here at Covenant, I want to please. And I have to admit that, that me wanting to please my employer is a good thing, but it's also a mixed thing. It's mixed with 
yeah, I, I want to have pride in my work, but also I can be prideful in my work, and that is to say that I can want to selfishly or even sinfully benefit from my employer being pleased with me. Uh, and, and so, while on the one hand, it, it is a good thing to want to have pride in your work and to please your employer, but we need to be honest, it, it, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes wanting to please the employer is for us to get ahead, maybe to get ahead of someone else for that, that position. But Paul's point is that if people-pleasing is the only thing that drives you, what happens when your boss asks you to do something unethical? Or the church wants you to go soft on a biblical doctrine. Or like the plant carpenter who is unnamed now. When, when all, all he wanted was a paycheck to do the least amount of work. If, if just simply pulling a paycheck or advancing in the company, if that's what drives you and not Christ, then you'll ultimately compromise. And maybe even compromise the quality and the integrity of, of your work. What should drive our obedience is this, verse 22, sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Pa Paul writes similarly in Ephesians chapter 6, 5 when he says this, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And notice that, that our obedience to and our work for the earthly employer flows from a sincere heart, a conscientious heart, a heart that has integrity. Why? Because of the transforming power of the gospel. Thus, thus our obedience flows from a heart that fears the Lord, that has reverence for him, that respects him. In Ephesians 6 and verse 5, Paul uses the phrase fear and trembling. It means to respect that authority. The fifth commandment calls us to honor and respect parental authority, and it's extended really to honor and respect all authority, legitimate authority over us. And the point that Paul is making here is that when we respect those earthly authorities, we are respecting the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The lesson is this, our work is a function of faith in Christ. It's a function of our union with him in saving faith. It is to be all about our living as a new creation in Christ. Paul says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. That's what should drive us. Not people-pleasing, but Jesus-pleasing. What must drive our obedience is Christ. Christian employee, fulfill your obligation to your boss at work as though you were directly reporting to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's your supervisor. He's your manager. Students, you fulfill your obligation as a Christian in the classroom 
as if it's the Lord Jesus Christ who's standing up in front of the class teaching. Citizen, you fulfill your obligation as the ruled, as though Jesus is in charge of City Hall, the state capitol, and Washington, D.C., and he actually is in control. Church member, you fulfill your obligations under the elder's authority as if Christ himself is shepherding you, and that's exactly what the Bible says. The elder is the under-shepherd. Christ is the shepherd. Though you may pull a paycheck, get a good grade, benefit from being a citizen, our true reward is the internal, eternal inheritance we have received from Christ. Look at verse 24. Paul gave the reason for this reward. He, he tells us what should drive us as we fulfill our obligations as those under authority, as those that are new creations in Christ Jesus. He says, you are serving the Lord, verse 24. As we think about, as we actually go about being under authority, may those words in verse 24 ring loudly in our hearts and in our minds. You are serving the Lord ultimately. And so there's a cultural context. And Paul then goes to those under authority, gives instruction that you are serving the Lord as you serve and obey your earthly masters. And then thirdly, he turns to the master, those in authority. How are they to faithfully discharge their duties? What does that look like? And, and Paul says it looks like justice and fairness or, or impartiality. I, I have worked for many bosses this, over my career and my work life, I should say. And uh, one assistant manager at the McDonald's where I worked in high school and my supervisor when I worked on the maintenance crew at the seminary I attended exemplify what Paul is saying here. Now, the odd thing is I don't think either one of these men were believers but the way they went about expressing their authority in the workplace was exemplary. And, and what set them apart? There is one thing that set them apart. The welfare of those under their authority was at the top of their priority list. Jim Collins wrote a book, Good to Great. If you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to do so. It's a bit dated, but none, like one of the companies he mentions is out of business now. Uh, Circuit City. But nonetheless, it's a helpful book because there Jim Collins says, what makes a truly great leader of a large company? And it's not charisma, it's not smarts. He said two things. They're humble. And they put the employees under them and the company ahead of, their own, ahead of themselves. These are biblical principles to leadership. Paul calls Christian masters to, to, to have the interests of their bondservants as their top priority. 
Jim Collins called uh, his successful leaders, the level five leader, well, Paul says, be a supercharged level five uh, leader. Paul in chapter 4 and verse 1 instructs Christian authorities, treat bond servants justly and fairly. Those in authority have a, have a great deal of power over their subordinates. And Paul wrote these instructions for the very reason that there were masters in that first century that were abusing their bond servants. If that's not the case, why did he give these instructions even to Christian masters in the church? You know, some bosses in our day use their authority to, to abuse their employees. And you can just think of all the examples of abuse of power in the workplace. And in other places, think of teachers or youth workers who abuse their position, abuse their power to harm the children under them. If there are, this is really sad, but, and I'm trying to be careful here not to mention names. I've already mentioned one name I intended not to mention. But there have been articles and there have been podcasts that have detailed the fall of a well-known pastor and the fall is characterized in his abusiveness towards his congregation. Yeah, pastors can abuse their authority over the very flock the Lord Jesus has put under their charge. Shameful. Mankind's tendency is to get power and abuse it. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. And I think Lewis is right. Paul gives a warning of sorts in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 25 and then Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 8 and 9. Paul's teaching is that God will not ignore selfless, self-centered service of the bondservant in not doing good for the master. And he calls uh, the master to be aware of the same, that if he fails to do good to the bondservant, if he refuses to stop threatening him, Ephesians chapter 6, 9, if he refuses to stop taking advantage of him and he misuses his authority and he treats them unjustly and unfairly, Colossians 4 verse 1, both Ephesians and Colossians include a warning to the master that God doesn't show partiality. If he is going to bring judgment upon the unfaithful bondservant, surely he will do the same, bringing judgment upon the unfaithful master. There is no partiality with him, Colossians 4.1 and Ephesians 6.9, referring to God. And so the sense of this passage is for masters to seek the welfare of those under their authority and if they fail, they will not be treated any different than the unfaithful bondservant. Christian in authority, we are called to work for the welfare of those under our charge. That's the lesson. Those in authority, Christian, 
are you doing that? Those under authority, Christian, are you obeying as unto the Lord, the legitimate authority? I want to conclude with, with this, asking the question, does the gospel make a difference in the social relationships between Christians where one is in authority and one is under authority? Same question, said a different way. What does Paul's teaching look like practically? And I would, I would turn you to the book of Philemon. It is a beautiful one-chapter picture of the power of the gospel in transforming the life of a master and the life of a bondservant. Pastor Coyle preached through Philemon last summer, and that series is available on our website. I would commend it to you. It is a beautiful story. It is a story we need to hear. Paul gave instructions to Philemon, a wealthy Christian in Colossae, and also to Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave. Onesimus probably stole something from his master, and he fled from Colossae to Rome. While in Rome, he came under the influence of the Apostle Paul, who was under house arrest, and he was eventually converted by Paul. And Paul instructed Onesimus, who knew what had happened, whose life had been transformed by the gospel. In my words, he said to Onesimus, now that you're a new creation in Christ, you go and make things right with Philemon, that that relationship might be transformed by the gospel. And then the Apostle Paul instructs Philemon, and he says, Philemon, your runaway slave Onesimus has been converted. He's your brother in Christ now. When he comes to you, forgive him and receive him as a brother in Christ. Think about that relationship, how the gospel transforms that relationship as Philemon and as Onesimus simply obey what the Apostle Paul has said in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 6. And the power of the gospel transforms their relationship. And the power of the gospel may very well work through that relationship to transform Colossae. Listen, what we're dealing with, this business of orthopraxis, is one way that the Lord Jesus Christ transforms churches and cities and states. The glory of the gospel being manifested in the people of God simply obeying the word of God. And living by faith that the gospel might transform. And that that transformed life, that transformed relationship might declare to the world the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you today, don't take for granted that your relationship with your boss, your relationship with your employee, your relationship with your teacher, your relationship with your students, your relationships as those in authority, those under authority, don't forget that can make a real difference. 
not because of you, but because of you, by God's grace, living as a new creation in Christ, and the power of the gospel comes in and transforms that relationships and transforms that classroom and transforms that workplace and transforms that church and transforms that city. Do you believe that? I do. We see it right here in Philemon. I want to end by bringing this message to a close, looking at Micah 6.8 that Jerry read earlier. You might say, what in the world does Micah 6.8 have to do with masters and slaves? I think it has everything to do with masters and slaves. Micah 6.8 is, is a verse that, that I cling to. It's very, very significant. This verse gives guidance to me as I try to be guided by Scripture and how I live my life, even imperfectly. It can be a guide to you, and it, it certainly shows forth a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And it shows forth, I believe, and gives guidance, I believe, to how we are to live as those in authority and those under authority. Former President Theodore Roosevelt was asked by the New York Bible Society in 1917 to write a message that would go on the front inside cover of Bibles that would be given to U.S. soldiers going off to fight World War I. Roosevelt's message was entitled the Micah Mandate, and he quoted Micah 6.8, do justice, stand for tr the truth of Scripture. Let me just use employee-employer as an example. Employees, do your work consistent with the truth of Scripture. Employers, manage your employees consistent with the truth of Scripture. Love mercy, Roosevelt wrote. Be concerned for the welfare of others. Students, I'll use it as, as an example. Be concerned about the welfare of your teachers and the administration of your school. And teachers, be concerned about the welfare of your students. Have mercy on them. And then he also wrote, walk humbly with your God. That is, walk in total dependence upon him. Walk by faith. As one in authority, your expression of your authority is a function of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. View it that way. Those of you that are under authority, the way you go about living under that authority is a function of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk humbly. Those in authority, those under authority. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme for today is our identity in Christ as a new creation. It impacts every area of our life and it impacts the relationship between those in authority and those under authority. How are we to navigate this relationship? Here's how. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I ask you to work powerfully in the lives of your people here at Covenant. As we are all under your authority, Lord, enable us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before you as we obey you as the ultimate authority in our lives. For those who are earthly authorities here of others, Father, I pray that you would give us all that we need, that, that we would go about being an authority according to Scripture, that we would stand on Scripture, that we would be merciful, that the top of our priority list would be the welfare 
of those in our charge. And Father, that we would also see the way that we go about expressing our authority as being a function of our faith, that we would depend on you and that you would be pleased to bring the power of the gospel to bear on these relationships for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.